Hi, Beth Girl here today with Dr. Reagan Wells, who's a fellow criticalist, and she's the medical director at Blue Pearl, Arizona. Dr. Wells, thanks so much for joining us for today's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I recently saw your publication in the Journal of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care that came out in 2015 and just wanted to pick your brain on it because I thought it was an awesome case. It was a boxer who had presented for synthetic marijuana. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through the case and talk about what clinical signs and treatments you ended up implementing in this dog. Absolutely. This case was actually a very frustrating and confusing case for our emergency doctors. This boxer presented in the middle of the night, comatose. He had been found in his kennel unresponsive with some vomit. When he presented to our emergency room, he was hypothermic, comatose, and very unresponsive. So the original workup included sort of our standard approach to a patient in this condition, screening blood work, chest and abdominal radiographs. Really, we couldn't find an overt cause for this. We kept going back to these owners to find out, is there any possibility that their pet may have gotten into anything? And they kept mentioning potpourri. No, there's nothing in the house other than this potpourri. So after consulting with me, my thoughts were, hmm, potpourri should not cause these types of clinical signs. Typically with potpourri, we're going to have irritation of the mucous membranes, maybe some GI upset. We shouldn't have a comatose patient. So at that point in the conversation, I talked with these owners and I said, look, we, we're at a point where we either commit and do advanced imaging with CSF, thinking that perhaps this dog had some sort of inflammatory or infection infectious central nervous system disorder, or we really come clean with what this dog may have been exposed to. So they went home and they brought in the potpourri, and that's when we sort of had our aha moment. It was a very small little container, and it had a triple X on the label, and it was clearly a synthetic marijuana potpourri. And this dog ingested uh, less than about two grams of this product, or that was the assumption. They found that the potpourri had been left out on a table, and the dog was exposed to it. It was flavored, I think, chocolate flavored. And so obviously after ingesting this product, the dog then developed his clinical signs. So at that point, we were actually quite excited. We felt that, you know, this dog likely had a good prognosis if we could support him through his crisis. He was hypoventilating, so his CO2 was building up. He had very high CO2 levels. He also had periods where he would just stop breathing altogether. So at this point, we discussed with the owner that we really needed to support him. His airway needed to be protected as he was not swallowing, and we were worried about secondary aspiration pneumonia. Provided supplemental oxygen, and unfortunately, he still was not ventilating appropriately. So it was at that point that we initiated mechanical ventilation just to help move that CO2 and support him while he was so asleep. We decided to try a trial dose of intralipids or ILE, intralipid emulsion therapy. And the thought process behind this was that we know that cannabinoids and synthetic cannabinoids, they're very lipophilic. And when we administer ILE, we're typically reaching for that in cases where animals have ingested lipophilic substances. 
there are a few theories surrounding why we think this may help, but I think the one that is easiest to sort of wrap your brain around is that by giving the lipid, you are then providing a sink for these lipophilic compounds. So the synthetic cannabinoid is then pulled off of the receptors in the brain and is more readily metabolized out of the body. So we did a trial dose of the intralipid therapy, and the dog was more arousable immediately following this trial dose. So at that point, we felt that we had a somewhat clinical response, and the overall risk was fairly minimal to this patient. So we elected to move forward with a continuous rate infusion of the intralipid therapy. I think one area looking back on the management of this case that was perhaps a little confusing for us in the moment was that we also used propofol intermittently to help keep this dog calm and sedate. As we were having a response to the intralipid infusion, our patient would have periods of excitement, but then immediately go back to sleep and hypoventilate. And so we were using propofol to keep this patient quiet and on the mechanical ventilator. And so thinking back on that, knowing that propofol is also in a lipid carrier, our questions, is it possible that the propofol gave us an additive effect and helped this dog recover faster? Or did it negate the effects of the intralipid infusion? At the end of the day, we're not quite sure what happened in this patient as far as what role the propofol may have had versus the intralipid therapy, but we do know that this patient was off of the mechanical ventilator by the next morning. And when we consulted with National Animal Poison Control, they explained to us that uh, what they know of the synthetic cannabinoids is that the expected half-life in the dog is anywhere from 72 to 96 hours. And this patient recovered in under 24 hours. So it's our opinion that our therapy with the intralipid infusion probably hastened this patient's recovery and was able to get off of the ventilator faster. So that's a great point because a lot of people don't think about the interference of intravenous lipid emulsion with other drugs. So with CPR drugs like epinephrine, vasopressin, with anticonvulsants or muscle relaxants like methocarbamol or phenobarb, obviously with propofol since it's white, you know, and also in lipid, uh, we always forget that a lot of these other drugs are lipophilic. So in this situation, had your veterinarians been aware of quote-unquote potpourri? Because when people hear potpourri, they often think of liquid potpourri, which is corrosive for cats. They don't think of you know, synthetic marijuana when people hear that word potpourri. Right. It definitely was not on our radar. It wasn't on my radar. Uh, we did have one case about a month prior to this case where the patient was presented and the owners admitted that the animal ingested spice. And so our veterinarians were very aware of what spice is, and spice is just another term for synthetic cannabinoids. So there's a lot of street terms for this, spice, K2, and now, of course, potpourri. And what is a challenge for us, I think, as veterinary professionals, is that these synthetic cannabinoids are available over-the-counter anywhere. One minor change in the molecular structure of these chemicals will keep them 
um, in loopholes essentially from the law. And so laws are passed to ban synthetic cannabinoids and the people that are making these substances just respond by making a small tweak to the chemical and now that chemical is legal. And they spray these synthetic cannabinoids onto all sorts of substances. So we really don't know what it is our patients are ingesting as far as the plant material and for that matter what any of our teenage children or um, other people are smoking in that sense. Yeah, it's a bit scary. So I always tell people, if you learn one thing from this Bet Girl podcast, you need to know street slang for illicit drugs. So again, K2, Spice, Potpourri. I know a couple of years ago, we had a huge amount of poisoning cases from bath salts. And people had never heard of bath salts causing toxicity and people were actually buying it as an illegal drug. It had some type of amphetamine that was in it and they were snorting it or doing whatever they do with it. So really important that vets be aware of that. In this situation, what dose of intravenous lipid did you guys have success with? So what we ultimately did in this case was kept this patient on a continuous rate infusion of about 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour. And the rationale for that dose really was uh, based upon uh, what was practical for emergency room. There are a lot of protocols out there where you administer perhaps a two milligram per kilogram bolus. And then if you have a response, you continuously repeat these small boluses for periods of time. And what we have found, at least in our emergency room, is that that can be challenging. You know, we're very busy. Technicians might get behind on treatments. And the next thing you know, you know, four hours have gone by and we haven't reevaluated that patient and started the small uh, infusion again. And so what we have adapted in, in our ICU is just a straight continuous rate infusion for these patients. And it's purely my opinion that that's a very practical and, and safe approach. And so what we do in these patients is we periodically measure a packed cell volume total protein and we evaluate the serum for lipemia or hemolysis. So have you seen any side effects from using intravenous lipid emulsion? I know it's extra label, but you know what potential complications should we be warning owners about when we do use ILE? Yes, I'm glad that you asked that. I do have another case that we managed where we had such an outstanding response to lipids. This was very early on when lipids were very new to the scene in emergency critical care medicine. And our clinicians were just so thrilled with the response that we just continuously administered boluses of lipids to a patient that had ivermectin toxicosis. It was very rewarding. Every time we gave it, this dog would sit up and look great. So we just kept giving... ILE boluses, and that patient developed fat overload syndrome. And what that patient did is he hemolyzed all of his red blood cells. So he had a massive hemolysis that did require transfusion therapy. And the other part of the treatment is to just stop your intravenous emulsion therapy. And that patient did great after we stopped giving so many lipids and uh, did not have any long-term consequences. But some of the other things we worry about and that we should discuss with owners would be the possibility of a fat embolism, which would be uh, characterized by potentially acute neurological complications or acute respiratory distress. We also worry about things like pancreatitis as a possibility as a consequence of fat overload syndrome. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I see a lot of people jumping on the popularity of wanting to try intravenous lipid emulsion. And I'm obviously a huge fan for it. But I always tell people, when in doubt in human medicine, remember, you have to cardiac arrest and die and fail CPR before you get intravenous lipid emulsion. So in veterinary medicine, I do think it it has some huge benefit, especially for really severely affected patients. But the hard thing is, you know, the both human and veterinary literature is scattered with info that it doesn't work or it does work. So it's nice to see that it, it definitely works for synthetic marijuana. I did want to ask you, with synthetic marijuana and the cases that you've seen compared to traditional straight up bud or, you know, true marijuana, have you noticed any difference in clinical signs? So, you know, classically, I know with regular THC, we see that urinary incontinence, that severe bradycardia, that severe sedation. Do you think you see more severe signs with synthetic or the CNS stimulation signs instead? We do feel that with the synthetic cannabinoids, it requires a much smaller ingestion and much more severe clinical signs. So the CNS signs that we see are profound and they are typically characterized by profound sedation or in this dog's case, um, we had a comatose patient that had respiratory depression. We've had a handful of cases that died uh, despite aggressive treatment. I think in that same vein, what I have seen uh, here in Phoenix as we do have medical marijuana legal and there are some pretty strong strains, especially in the baked goods, is that the days of, you know, sort of the funny pot dog that's peeing on himself and just needs a little bit of time to recover are behind us. Uh, We've had a number of patients uh, die from severe complications of ingesting even regular marijuana. Usually it's in the form of baked goods and the cases that have died have been due to respiratory complications. And so we feel that these patients have uh, vomited, they have respiratory depression, they're not protecting their airway, they aspirate, and then we've lost them from severe aspiration pneumonia. So it can be quite devastating because we as veterinarians, either general practice veterinarians seeing these cases or emergency room veterinarians kind of set these owners up for, you know, this is pretty mild. We're just going to monitor your patient or even go home, put them in a dark room. They'll be okay by morning and they're not. So I think that we should just be a little bit more aware and and practicing uh, more proactive medicine in these cases, at least if you are in a region that has legal, either medicinal or even recreational marijuana, the clinical signs are just much more severe. I agree. I know uh, Miola and all out of Colorado at a Wheat Ridge published that paper a couple of years ago about the massive increase in you know medicinal marijuana licenses and the fourfold increase in marijuana poisoning in dogs. And it's frustrating. I think you nailed it when you said that synthetic marijuana seems to have a lower dose where we see clinical signs. We don't know the LD50 of synthetic products versus, you know, the LD50 for marijuana is greater than three grams per kg. So I always tell people it's it's hard to die from it unless they have severe complications like aspiration pneumonia or hypoventilation that you're talking about. But we can see clinical signs at really low doses. So really frustrating. So Dr. Wells, When it comes to administering intravenous lipid emulsion, I know that you stated that you like the CRI approach versus just the intermittent bolus dosing. 
And I know, you know, some people we've, well, we've extrapolated that ILE dose from human medicine. So the 20% solution bolusing, you know, 1.5 mils per kg quickly over one minute, followed by the 0.25 mil per kg per minute for 30 to 60 minutes. And it sounds like you've had that success with the different dose that we published in Fernandez and all state-of-the-art review in JVAC on the use of intravenous lipid emulsion at 0.5 mils per kg per hour. Are you finding more success with that? Or I know that you had mentioned it's more convenient in the emergency room setting, but have you noticed any difference? I guess I'm certainly biased because I prefer that method. I do think it's more effective. I've used it really anytime I'm managing a case or consulting. That's the the protocol that I typically use. And I just find that it's a much smoother overall road to recovery. And there's not as much of this sort of rapid, profound improvement followed by, you know, then the clinical signs recur. You kind of wait for serum to clear or whatever you know, your next timeline might be and give another bolus. And it's just far easier for the nursing staff to stay on top of as well. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's enough evidence in veterinary medicine for us to prospectively or retrospectively look at this at this point. I think either way can work relatively well. And the one mistake I see people making is not giving enough where their patient ever actually even develops hyperlipidemia. So we're actually aiming for hyperlipidemia. The last case I just used it on was actually this past week, and it was an outpatient comatose marijuana case. (laughs) The owners had major financial limitations, and all we could do was gastric lavagem. It was THC butter, which, you know, there have been fatalities reported in that Miola and all paper with THC butter because it's supposedly more lipophilic. And literally, we gastric lavage this dog, got out some oil, got, you know, got activated charcoal into this dog, gave it a dose of meropotent, so it didn't aspirate, tried the two mil per kg to four mil per kg IV bolus immediately over a minute, did the lower dose of 0.25 mil per kg per minute for 30 minutes, used up the rest of the 500 mil bag, and literally brought the dog outside to go home. <laughs> and he was unfortunately obtunded and comatose, but he was still at a respiratory rate of 10 breaths per minute. And thankfully, when I called the owner the next day, the dog was back to normal. But it is scary. And it's frustrating because, you know, with the decriminalization, we end up seeing so much more marijuana toxicity. And like you said, it, they can be severe. So, so important that vets know about the dangers of both synthetic and true marijuana and just nice to know that there's that option of using ILE. Exactly. I agree. I mean, it's really revolutionized our practice and helped get these patients out of the hospital so much faster, you know, even when there are not significant financial constraints. I mean, if you can take a patient that needs mechanical ventilation and without ILE, you might be looking at four to five days and risking a lung injury or aspiration pneumonia, et cetera, and shorten that time to 12 to 24 hours on the ventilator, you know, that's a win for everybody. Absolutely. I totally agree. And we actually find that it's not very expensive. I don't know if you know the price for ILE, but you know when we looked at our clinic price, it was less than $100 for a 500 mil bag, and that's at cost. But I was actually shocked how inexpensive it is. 
Right. That's what we have found too. Occasionally there will be shortages in availability and so sometimes uh, the local hospitals may suck up all of the resources so you have to get a little creative and uh, look for it but we've also had good luck with finding it fairly affordably. Awesome. I always say all specialty clinics and emergency clinics should have a bag. And uh, worst case scenario, you know, if it expires, it's not that expensive. I think it has a two-year shelf life. But the important thing to remember is it is isosmolar, so you can give it through a peripheral catheter. You don't need a central line for it. But once you open it, you want to treat it like preservative-free propofol. You have to throw it away after 24 hours, use sterile technique, and make sure to refrigerate it when you're not using it in that immediate first 24 hours. Right. Excellent advice. Something that we do to minimize bacterial risk of bacterial contamination is we actually leave the patient connected at all times so that we're not connecting and disconnecting and um, worrying about that. That's perfect. Again, try to use a sterile dedicated catheter. So whether or not you're using the intermittent bolusing versus the CRI, you don't inject in antibiotics or any other drugs. You, you want that one dedicated peripheral sterile catheter. So any last words when it comes to being able to counsel the owner on how to tell you that their dog got into something illicit? Or do you just normally urine drug screen a lot of these patients? Yeah, that's actually a great question. Uh, the urine drug screen that, that we have in our emergency room is, is a human urine drug screen. And something that I have seen is that we have, especially when I was practicing in Colorado, we'd have a number of patients arrive and the owners very openly tell us he ingested marijuana, we know what's going on, and we would often run a urine drug screen just out of curiosity. And there are a number of cases of acute toxicosis where they are not positive on that urine drug screen for cannabinoids or cannabis, THC. And so I think that's a really important point that we can't rely just on that screen. And so if the clinical signs fit it's likely, you know, what you suspect. And so our approach is to just, you know, be very open uh, with these owners and tell them, look, it's actually a good thing if this is what's going on with your patient because we can skip things like advanced imaging of the brain, CSF testing, et cetera, and we can focus all of our finances on supportive care. And if we can avoid these complications, your pet's likely going to do quite well. And we also like to tell them, look, you know, our job is not to report your activities. Our job is to take care of your pet. And we appreciate that you cared enough to bring your pet in for care tonight. Awesome, awesome advice. I know the limitations of those urine drug tests. So I always use the threat of the test when they don't admit to it. I'm like, well, you know, you're not going to get in trouble. But the sooner we know, we can treat them. Otherwise, we can, you know, do this $200 drug test. And they'll, like, they'll instantly say, it was pot. <laughs> so... <laughs> I always like the threat of it. It is important for people to know, for our listeners, that the urine drug screening test is not accurate for THC in dogs because there's often a false negative because of the metabolite is uh, delta-8 versus delta-11 or something like that. Um, when you do see a positive, it is a true positive or even a weak positive. It is consistent with some kind of THC or synthetic THC that's ingested. But just remember, with those urine drug tests, you can see a lot of false negatives. So like Dr. Wells said, trust your gut instinct. If it's got urinary incontinence, it's really sedate, it fits the clinical signs, again, most likely it's marijuana. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wells. That was a fantastic case report, and I was so glad to see it published because it 
just again shows that intravenous lipid emulsion can be life-saving for severe cases. Thank you so much.